Hail to you, sons and daughters of man. You're listening to the Brute Norse podcast. My name is Erik Storsen, and this is the first out of two episodes concerning beer in Old Norse culture and society. In this episode, we'll mostly concern ourselves with some of the technological specifics of beer and how it is and may have been made. While in the next episode, we will look at some specific archaeological finds as well as taking a closer look at the cultural importance of beer in Iron Age and medieval Scandinavia. So find yourself a nice little corner, step onto your commute, reach for that paper bag and crack open that 40 ounce of malt liquor. This show won't cure your athlete's foot or pay down your student loan, but it may kill some time as we walk backwards into the future. all the imagination you can muster, but I was once a wretched, drunken undergrad, hoping for a PhD or maybe even, dare I say it, a professorship far down the line. While at the same time, as a student at the university, you're faced with an impenetrable wall that separates you from a stable career. The long and uphill path towards tenure seemed to me like an increasingly distant dream until I felt that academia itself was, even though sometimes very sweet and interesting and fun, also somewhat of a nightmare, full of bitter stories and jaded personalities. As far as I was concerned, the best I could hope for was living from contract to contract, hopping between universities, and risk unemployment at 48 or some other inconvenient age. In the end, that was a Faustian pact that I was not willing to make. At the same time, you're living in a society that tells you that your humanities degree isn't worth shit. You can wipe your ass with it. Even though in reality, any traditional classical education leaves you with a well-rounded package of employable skills. Of course, that sort of broad vision is not taught to your hiring manager who stepped into their job out of, I don't know, leadership studies or some other quack discipline. That raises all sorts of introspective questions. If you are a passionate and driven individual, and apparently also good at what you do, but you don't fit the extremely open-ended world of academia, then where do you belong? The world doesn't owe you anything. You must create that belonging for yourself. And I like to think that that's what I'm doing here on Brute Norse. Nevertheless, there was a time where I was preparing to write what could have become my PhD thesis on Old Norse drinking culture. There are many people who get into Old Norse because they have a burning passion and knack for linguistics and maybe codicology and such, which is the study of manuscripts. These are important to the discipline, but it was never where my heart lay. I was never interested in philology for philology's sake, as condescending as that may sound. I was interested in the old school perspective of philology as the study of culture through words. But as we have established on the podcast before, and will re-establish in this episode, 
words can only take us so far. To make sense of the past, our perspective cannot be on an atomic level. We must broaden our scope and work with many different disciplines. This realization drew me towards Wörter und Sachen, words and things. To some people, it is almost as if nothing is real outside of the manuscript, and something is only ever as old as the parchment it's written on. But in my world, and the world of my idols, the written word must be measured up to the physical remains, to the artifacts, and the world that we can see and touch and feel and sense around us. And despite my doomsaying of the sustainability of contemporary academic institutions, the methodology is straight on point. Though, or precisely because we are saying that we live in an age of information, we are still standing on the shoulders of giants. We need that reception, the overview, the scholarly theory and praxis, perhaps more now than ever before. But I digress. In manuscript studies, you have something called hands. The hand is literally the hand that wrote the manuscript. You're often looking for traces of different hands, different people who put their touch on the manuscript. The physical manuscript itself, I was never really that interested in. I was more interested in the personalities behind the manuscripts, the scribes, the authors, who they were, their identity, their culture, and sense of self. But first of all, I was interested in the contents of the manuscripts. It could never captivate me as much as the sagas could, or a well-written line of poetry, or even the distribution of a certain typology of sword along the West Norwegian coast in the Viking Age. But I still remember very fondly my first meeting with a 12th century work called The First Grammatical Treatise, which is a rundown of the Old Norse sound system composed by an anonymous Icelandic scholar known retrospectively as the first grammarian. Now that might not sound that fucking interesting, but bear with me, because it is, for a number of reasons. First of all, the first grammarian wrote this treatise sometime between 1125 and 1175, we just don't really know. This may have been barely a century after the official end of the Viking Age, but at the time, Sweden was not even fully Christianized. There are boat burials in the Melar Valley from the 12th century, indicating that they were still pretty pagan and not particularly shy about it either. This is a very fascinating transitional period in Scandinavian history. Meanwhile, the first grammarian was probably sitting in a dim-lit, smoky turf house on Iceland, providing an indispensable source for Old Norse pronunciation, using arguments you could easily mistake for modern grammar, but ironically with a clarity and playfulness that many modern grammars lack. The grammarian raised an important point. Because all languages are different, you need to adapt the writing system accordingly. Latin was not very well equipped to express Old Norse, and so the grammarian himself came up with a suggestion for an updated Old Norse orthography. He raises his points quite cleverly, using minimal pairs. Minimal pairs are words that are alike, save for one slight shift in sound value that sets their meaning apart. Here are some of the examples that the first grammarian used. Sukona govgargoth er sjalver er The woman that honors God is herself good. Or sur eru augu sir. Sour are the sow's eyes. A culinary remark, perhaps. But one particular example stuck out to me. Egi eru ol ol at eno. 
Not all ales are alike. Not all ales are alike. What exactly does that mean? Say, right now, I'm drinking a Session IPA. I've come to find that Americans have a palate of their own, specifically centered around hoppiness. That defines also the choice of ingredients, chiefly hops and their malt composition, I suppose. But this beer is fresh, flowery, quaffable, very different from a dark and powerful porter or stout like Guinness. Wouldn't you agree? But I do have a feeling that this isn't quite what the grammarian meant, and I've often pondered what this phrase really meant to him at the time he was alive and in the farmhouse brewing tradition of his native Icelandic culture. There are many different kinds of alcoholic beverages in the world, many of which are clearly quite distinct from one another, even though most people may not stop to think about the working definitions that make a certain beverage that specific beverage. Even if you know nothing about the production of wine and beer, you probably have an intuitive understanding that wine and beer are two separate and distinct products. What they have in common is obviously that they are both intoxicating beverages. If you are looking for a full-bodied red wine, there is no variety of beer that can fully take its place. And why is that? Well, it's because their contents and characteristics are completely different. But this is obvious to everybody, so why am I even saying it? Well, first of all, you, the listener, may or may not know very much about the production of alcoholic beverages, whether in the past or the present. And secondly, our ancestors might have had very different ideas about what goes into what kind of product. Our specific ideas about how beer is supposed to be made, what it is supposed to contain, and how good beer is supposed to taste might not be the same ideas that our ancestors had at all. Our definitions are not the objective definitions. Our opinions don't matter. When approaching ancient beverages, we have to forget our own palate and our puristic notions of what separates one beverage from another. With booze, it is most often the main source of fermentable sugar that determines what the beverage is. Malt for beer, fruits and berries for wine, honey for mead, and lactose, you know, from milk, has been used to create milk-based alcoholic beverages around the globe, including the Nordic area and also Norse culture. The magic here is that as long as you have a source of fermentable sugar, you can literally turn anything into an alcoholic beverage. Now, the distinction between beer and wine is ancient, but not as pure as we would usually think. It is certainly not a given. Because as soon as we start taking a closer look at the origins of our drinking culture, we start to see anomalies all over the place. Until the anomalies become so many that you realize that they are not anomalies, but part of the long-term historical norm. It took a very long time to reach the point where we are today. Much of it we owe not only to recent technological innovations, but also paradigms, ideas, opinions that affect the way we produce and consume food and drink. When I was a kid, beer was not considered quote-unquote culture in Norway. Well, in a sense, it was our culture, but it wasn't culture culture. It wasn't accordion music on Champs-Élysées on a sidewalk cafe culture. It wasn't MoMA culture or Tuscany culture. It wasn't wine culture. It was just another vulgar product. Of course, you and I probably understand that it is often in everyday vulgarity that our true culture lies, but you get the deal. 
At best, it was the drink of soccer on TV and summer afternoons, and at worst it was the archetypical Ula and Kari Norwegian with their Viking helmets on, being the regular national embarrassment on their holiday to Mallorca. That one day, the finest restaurants in the world would have dedicated beer sommeliers seemed like a fantasy. And to understand just how integral the industrial Pilsner beer was to Norwegian drinking culture, I can tell you that Pils became the regular slang term for just about any kind of beer. Eventually, stuff like Guinness came on the shelf, and people might ask each other things like, do you prefer dark or light Pils? As if Guinness was a Pils. Pils is a different kind of beer altogether. Today, of course, everybody knows that Guinness is a stout. If the kingdom had fallen to another black death in the 90s or 80s, kids my generation would have crawled out of the ruins thinking that Pils was simply the word for beer in the bastardized mutant tongue to follow the Norwegian in the grim alternative timeline that we are envisioning here. Of course, that was an imaginary scenario. But there are historical events and long-term twists of fate that could have led to similar shifts in our terminology and what we think of as being a certain beverage. Take hops, for example. What is beer without hops? It is almost unthinkable in our culture to envision such a thing. But that was the norm for the longest time. But let's return to the first grammarian. What variety of bears was he familiar with? Did he have preferences? What did he even know personally about bear brewing? The first grammarian's truisms opens up for a wealth of questions. Certainly, in the farmhouse brewing traditions of his own native culture, bears must often have varied somewhat from batch to batch, comparable to what modern homebrewers have to deal with today. In the Viking Age, Iceland relied on imports to cover the high demand of barley in the Norse diet, particularly due to beer brewing. That opens up a whole new vista of economic questions tied to the sale and production of malted barley, a commonly cited item of overseas trade, even in the sagas. But in mainland Scandinavia, farmers were probably a little bit more self-sufficient in terms of their barley consumption. As a consequence, there was probably more beer being drunk in Scandinavia than there was on Iceland, and certainly more than in Greenland, where there was no barley being grown at all. We know that, at least in the Middle Ages, dedicated kilns existed for the drying of malt. We know in later sources that saunas and bathhouses were also used for the same purpose across Fenno-Scandinavia, and it is possible that this was also the case in earlier days. The first and only mention, though, of such a kiln in the Norse texts comes from a Norwegian legal document dated 1325, concerning a certain Olaver Drengson, a tenant farmer who was killed while drying malt for his landlord, apparently out of vengeance, as Olaf had struck another man called Olaf in the head with an axe on a previous occasion. But malt and malting itself probably came to Scandinavia in the Neolithic, and our thirst for beer has hardly subsided though it has been challenged along the way by more exotic or cost-effective, cheaper beverages that are best treated in another episode. But the best source of fermentable sugar that the Norse had access to was in the form of malted barley, which could be produced pretty much wherever crops would grow, right there on the farm. There is too much we don't know about Iron Age and medieval brewing to say for sure how things definitely would have been. Besides, these traditions probably varied a lot. 
But luckily, we have a lot of surviving documentation of the Norwegian farmhouse brewing tradition, which must have descended at least in part from the techniques of medieval brewers, and probably also shares some of its characteristics with brewing going back the past 1000 to 1500 years. Therefore, I will be appealing to this farmhouse tradition not to provide any definite answers, but give a framework of informed speculation in accordance with some of the things that we do know from archaeological and literary evidence. Let's start with the absolute fundamental basis. We have established that beer is made out of malt. Malt is made out of cereal grains. You can use all sorts of grain, but with beer we're usually talking about barley. It is created by triggering enzymes that convert starch into fermentable sugar. Basically, what you do is you stimulate the grain by soaking it in water, which causes it to begin to sprout. It is in the very beginning stages of the sprouting that you must stop the process by drying the malt. And now that you have malt, you're ready to create beer. To create beer, malt must be steeped in warm water in a process called mashing, which creates the unfermented beer product called wort. When you mash, you do it not only to extract the sugars that are already present in the malt that you made, but to stimulate enzymes that convert remaining starch into malt sugar. Temperature is key here. Too low, and you're not converting and extracting your sugars effectively. If you do it too high, you destroy the enzymes and consequentially fail to convert the sugars, while also releasing tannins into the beer that will give it a harsh off flavor. Temperature also generally contributes to the body and mouthfeel of the beer. To give you an idea, the sweet spot lies around roughly 153 degrees Fahrenheit or 67 degrees Celsius. You might want to keep it at that temperature for an hour if you are a modern home brewer. The problem is that we have no idea how the Vikings or any other prehistoric brewer knew exactly when they hit the sweet spot or what kind of observational know-how they possessed to find that ideal mashing temperature because even modern farmhouse brewers didn't really know how the enzymes worked. What they basically did was repeating tried and tested methods from their own family history or local area creating beers and ales that conformed with local expectations. You're not brewing for yourself, you're brewing for the community, for your family, your friends, your neighbors in the local village. So basically the goodness of a beer was judged according to a set of criteria determined by local tradition. It was and continues to be the custom in many areas to filter the wort through juniper twigs. This has resulted in a perception where many people today consider juniper to be almost synonymous with farmhouse brewing. There is some chemical evidence to suggest that juniper was an ancient additive to prehistoric Scandinavian beer, but the textual evidence just simply isn't there. It's not mentioned even a single time in Old Norse sources, so we don't really know how old this practice is. There's certainly no shortage of people who wish to say that juniper has been a beer additive in Scandinavia for thousands of years. I would say that the potential is definitely there, but there are very good reasons for why the plant would be ignored in the Norse texts. First of all, our sources don't really speak very much about the ingredients of food and beverages. The second is that juniper was very commonplace and probably didn't have any economical value. And here I am arguing mainly based on technological limitations. Namely that the implements used in the Iron Age were probably not too dissimilar from the ones that were used up until modern times in the Scandinavian countryside. 
Cooperwood wooden vessels grew to prominence in the latter half of the Iron Age, and a lot of the other farmhouse implements that came at the time sometimes remained largely unchanged even up until the Industrial Revolution. The latter half of the Nordic Iron Age was pivotal in the development of the Nordic peasantry. It is highly likely that both used wooden filter vats that necessitated some sort of plant material at the bottom for the filtering of the warts. We know that juniper was used medicinally, it would have been available pretty much everywhere, but in lack of this direct evidence, we do know that juniper was used in later times across an extremely expansive geographical area, basically spanning across the Nordic. And it seems very unlikely that that would have happened just overnight without any form of conflict or documentation, indicating that this is a very ancient practice. And just a few words about hops. We don't know when Norse culture first began using hops in a brewing context. The first hopped beers would have come from continental Germanic areas in the latter half of the Nordic Iron Age, roughly from the 8th century onwards. And we start to find scattered evidence of hop import to Scandinavia as far back as the 9th century, though it is not abundantly clear if this was used for brewing or not. There are many other uses for hops as well. Hop cultivation on the continent only really began to get intense in the 11th century AD, which is when we can predictably say that hopped beer had left its experimental stage and no longer existed purely as a regional delicacy in France and Germany. It is likely that Scandinavia's first taste of hopped beer came with southern trade, increasingly in the high middle ages. Bog myrtle seems to have been preferred as a beer additive originally, and though it is speculative, Juniper remains a likely staple for native brewing tradition also in the Middle Ages, going far back into prehistory. But hops were probably used in Scandinavian urban centers at least by the 14th century, if not earlier, of course, alongside native brewing ingredients. Beyond juniper, the fact that bog myrtle and yarrow existed in the cultural memory as beer additives as late as the 20th century, though mostly as a relic of the near past, attests to the conservatism of the bear brewing tradition. I would have discussed the role of bog myrtle at length if I hadn't already published a lengthy article on the development of bog myrtle to hops in Nordic brewing tradition on brutenorse.com. If you're interested in herbal ales or so-called Groot ales, be sure to check that out. And while you're there, also check out the comment section where Lars Marius Garsol, who is probably the biggest authority on Nordic farmhouse brewing tradition, left some of his counterpoints to the discussion. After mashing comes the boil. In any modern brewing context, you would strain to separate the spent grains from the wort, and then boil the wort. This has two functions. One, to concentrate the wort by removing excess water, and also sterilizing the beer, which makes it keep longer. It is usually during the boil that hops are added to modern beer. In Norwegian farmhouse brewing, we find several different versions of how the wort is treated, from boiling the mash itself, which to me sounds totally crazy, to not boiling the wort at all, which defies all conventional brewing logic. In some of the regions that practiced the latter, there were even specific taboos against as much as uttering the word boil in the presence of the wort. This is just one of the countless taboos and beliefs attached to beer and brewing in Scandinavian folklore, where it was commonly believed that the beer was helped or sabotaged by spirits present either in the home or in the brew itself. In some cases, these beliefs are even tied to the technical specifics of brewing. One could, for example, say that once the mash started clearing, the so-called brewing man had come. In this case, it's almost like a supernatural entity has, you know, arrived in the brew itself. 
and this appearance of the so-called brewing man signified that the wart was ready to be tapped. There's a common myth going around that beer needs to be boiled when you make it. This goes hand in hand with another myth that all water in the past was polluted. That might be the case for many urban centers, but most Scandinavians lived in the countryside. Prior to the Middle Ages, we hardly had any urban centers at all. In fact, many Scandinavians had ample access to fresh water, but subsided on milk products in their daily lives. Beer drinking was largely occasional. And in those cases where beer was preferred in lack of clean drinking water, you only really need alcoholic fermentation to kill the pathogens that can harm us. Boiling the wort can reduce the risk of infections that might ruin your beer, and it might also help it keep longer. So boiling is not a bad idea. But good and bad ideas are not evidence. The prevalence of so-called raw ale in the Nordic brewing tradition begs the question if this is one of the original primordial brewing techniques that the Old Norse culture practiced. We may, for example, note that Old Norse words for boiling are not part of the brewer's vocabulary, as far as we can tell from the Old Norse sources. The common verb used when brewing beer is heita, which means to heat. One talks about heita ol, which means to heat ale. Of course, I'm assuming that the verb here reflects some of the technique involved. For example, we have mead. Old Norse sources talk about blanda mjod, which means blending mead. This doesn't have any connotation of heat use at all. And technically speaking, you don't really need heat to create mead. You only need to dilute it with water and somehow get it to ferment. Unpasteurized honey is prone to spontaneous fermentation. Mead is actually something as rare as an alcoholic beverage that emerges spontaneously in nature. Now, the verb heita for brewing beer does not conclusively prove or disprove that the Vikings brewed raw ale. But when you have two technologies, one in which the wort is boiled and one in which it isn't boiled, it does seem reasonable that the tradition of separating the boiled from the mash is a younger tradition than simply fermenting the unboiled wort. And we're not even addressing the madmen of later times who boiled the mash itself. Now, another matter is that many Iron Age brewers didn't have access to proper metal cauldrons for brewing. This is what made boiling so much easier in later times. But it is actually not a necessity. Archaeologists have come to associate abundances of so-called brewing stones with Iron Age beer culture. Brewing stones are stone shards and fragments usually found in very high concentrations, often in association with power centers and princely estates of the Nordic Iron Age. Such piles are found up until the 15th century in certain parts of Scandinavia, but it seems to have died out in the later farmhouse brewing tradition, most likely due to the rise of metal cookware. Our oldest source for a metal brewing kettle comes from the Eddic poem Hemisquitha, in which the beer-thirsty gods summon Thor, the thunder god, to fetch a gigantic iron cauldron. The cauldron is roughly one mile deep, and the endeavor damn near destroys the world. So this mythological poem does make for shaky dating criteria. It's not a realistic depiction by any means, and even though some certainly did have access to such extravagant luxuries as iron cauldrons, though significantly smaller, this was probably out of bounds for large swaths of the population, who, by the way, could do very well without it, because they had access to other indirect methods of heating water. And this might be what we're seeing with these brewing stones. 
These are not to be confused with regular fire-cracked stones, which are remains of cooking pits, and are often found with coals. Brewing stones are found without coals, and in higher concentrations. So what exactly went on there? Well, in the olden days, people who lacked metal pots to boil in would put stones in a fire. When the stones were red-hot, these stones could heat or boil water, even in a wooden vessel. The thing with brewing is that you're usually making large quantities at a time, far too large a quantity to rationally fit most of the metal cookware that even the elites had access to at the time. Perhaps especially if you were the elite, because your lifestyle and social obligations demanded access to large quantities of beer. Using stones, you could brew beer in massive wooden troughs and tons, quite effectively. No metal was needed. The intense heat exchange causes the stones to crack with use, and eventually they break off into shards and pebbles. The stones were discarded, and deposits of such brewing stones accumulate over time, leading us to identify signs of high-intensity brewing associated with particular estates. One such estate was Åker in Hedmark, quite famous for its exquisite migration-era artifacts. Suffice to say, it was probably the seat of a very powerful local dynasty in inner Norway, with ties to the kings of Uppland in Sweden in the 6th century. So whether or not they boiled their beer, we do know that they made stone-brewed beer. Stone-brewed beer is an obscure beer style that you can actually still get hold of today. I have had the pleasure of tasting stone-brewed beer, and it is quite delightful. The heat of the stones instantly caramelizes some of the malt sugar upon contact, which gives an ever-so-slight caramel flavor to the beer. Malt can be dried in several different ways, and different techniques probably existed already in the Viking Age, if not even earlier. We don't know what would have been the most common, but scattered evidence of malt kilns exist throughout the Iron Age as well. However, it seems likely that most farms did not use specialized structures for the sole dedicated purpose of drying malt. Most probably used the few heated rooms available at the farm, as the case was with later farmhouse brewers, who often used the hearths and the bathhouses for this purpose. Then there was also the possibility of drying malt in the sun when the weather allowed it. They probably didn't work with a variety of roasted malt, like the case is almost universally in modern breweries. Roasted malts, which are a product of the Industrial Revolution, also provide less sugar, which would have been wasteful in medieval and prehistoric Scandinavia, where agriculture was relatively unstable. Besides, the goal was to produce sweeter, stronger beers. As you can imagine, especially when the malt was sun-dried, the color of the brew would have been quite light. Darker color would have been symptomatic of stronger beers with a higher alcohol percentage, due to the sheer concentration of malt sugar. In the case of malt dried over fire, it is likely that the process was similar to later times. And if that was the case, malt would have been dried over indirect heat that did not roast the malt. The open fire would have meant the smoke was passing through the malt as it dried giving it at least a slightly peated flavor, a flavor that most of us probably associate with Scottish Islay whiskies. Depending on a wide range of different factors, like the skill of the maltster, temperature, humidity, and all of that stuff, homemade malt is always at the risk of drying slowly and unevenly. 
That means that lactic acid may develop in the malt, giving it a slight sourness. Admittedly, sour malt was one of the things that later farmers actively tried to avoid, but we must imagine that it at least existed on the spectrum of common flavors and off flavors, even though it might not have been desired. The beer itself could turn sour as well, and generally speaking, weaker ales are more susceptible to this than stronger ones. Herbs such as bog myrtle and yarrow both are attested in beverages far back in Nordic prehistory, and their use survived in Scandinavia up until the 20th century. Not only did these herbs add flavor to the beer, but also helped preserve it, and might also have served to mask undesired off flavors and create an overall more stable product. I guess by now we've touched upon several different beer styles that are still available in the specialized modern market. We have smoked beer, stone beer, herbal ales, so-called Groot ales, and farmhouse ales, including the very rare raw ale. I love all of these styles, and I think I'm going to put up a rough guide for my supporters up on patreon.com forward slash brutenorse to help you find some of the beer styles that I'm talking about, and also maybe talk a little bit about commercial reconstructions of historical beverages. In that same breath, I just want to give a brief shout out to my friends over at Ake or Tid, meaning Oak and Time, which is a brewery in Oslo, Norway, that is heavily inspired by the Norwegian farmhouse ale tradition that specializes in rustic ales and sour beers. They stick to Norwegian malt, Norwegian hops, and their own blends of indigenous farmhouse yeast strains. If you're ever in Oslo or a discerning beer bar anywhere else in Norway, be sure to check them out. It will be unlike anything you've ever tasted. All of their beer is raw ale, meaning it is not boiled. That is almost without any comparison to anything you've ever tasted before, I can almost guarantee it. And this isn't a paid ad or anything like that, I'm just throwing Eik Ogtid's name out there because I like what they do. And I know it's a very tough business, especially for these niche brewers. And you know, Norwegian alcohol policy being what it is, they're not allowed to advertise their products to the consumer. Uh, they're barely even allowed to tell you that they exist. So they're good guys. Their beer is indigenous and totally unique. They deserve the support. And while we are on that specific subject, it seems fitting to address the question of fermentation and yeast. According to later descriptions of farmhouse ales, beer could be brewed and consumed within just a couple of days. Here's where we get to the big question of indigenous farmhouse yeast strains, which in Norway is often called kveik. There is a myth going around that people had no understanding or concept of yeast before Louis Pasteur in the 19th century. That is false for a number of quite obvious reasons, and assumes that all beers prior to that were spontaneously fermented, which they weren't. Brewing is a very meticulous procedure, and fermentation essentially breeds yeast. This can be harvested either from the top as it ferments, or from the bottom as it settles. But its presence and power is quite visible indeed. We know that yeast was harvested and stored in the Norse Middle Ages, probably also in the Iron Age, and who knows, maybe even earlier. Yeast is the unspoken domesticated animal. Old Norse has several words for brewing yeast, including joster, dreg, and quake, from which Norwegian terms like jest and quake derive. The farmhouse tradition also records several methods of drying and storing yeast from one session to the next. Actually, the vocabulary itself seems to reveal that they knew exactly what they needed to know about yeast. Quake is cognate to the verb quake, which means to set alight, awaken, or make lively. 
a euphemism certainly, for the fizzing, swelling, raging brew itself. No two yeasts are really the same, but indigenous farmhouse yeast strains also have properties that set them apart distinctly from the ale and lager yeasts that have monopoly on the modern market and is to be found in every modern brewery. Normal beer yeast ferments at a lower temperature and ferments slower than northern European farmhouse cultures, which ferment at temperatures that are ill-advised in conventional brewing, up to 109 degrees Fahrenheit or 43 degrees Celsius essentially bathtub temperature. They ferment like a storm and create aromas of funk, caramel, and tropical fruit. If we compare it to regular modern ale yeast and using a modern recipe, it might take you at least three weeks before you start even thinking about drinking the beer, and you would ferment it a little bit lower than regular room temperature. But a farmer brewing a traditional wedding beer might do it in just a couple of days in advance and still consider it fit for consumption at the wedding feast. That is because he used yeast strains that behaved completely different to what Carlsberg and Guinness have been using since their inception. With farmhouse yeasts, it was entirely possible to turn most of the sugar into alcohol and CO2 within 24 to 48 hours. At the same time, Norwegian farmhouse yeasts tend to have an alcohol tolerance of about 13 to 16%, which is more than most other yeasts, making many of these beers extremely strong. Suddenly the Roman ethnographer Tacitus doesn't seem so naive anymore when he talks about the beverages of the Germanic tribes as resembling wine, but made from barley and wheat. We're used to thinking of beer as a lower alcohol product compared to wine. Here we can see that at least sometimes the opposite might have been true. At least if the characteristics of Northern European indigenous yeast cultures are representative also of the yeast cultures available to people that far back in time. Something that all brewers appreciate, but not many people know, is just how much yeast affects the flavor of a beer. You can take two batches with the exact same amount and type of malt and hops and use two different strains. Let's say you use a lager yeast for one and a Belgian farmhouse yeast for the other. One might turn out crisp and dry. The other one will have the taste and aroma and funkiness of a horse's ass. I can almost guarantee you that much of Old Norse beer would have been in the ass end of that scale. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it was bad. It means that we as consumers are taught to think about beer in a very limited scope that is not reflective of the full grand history of the beverage. Past beverages relied on local availability and traditions, but the most widely consumed beers today are made to be as inoffensive as possible to the globalized palate. They tend to be pale lagers fermented using lab-grown yeast strains that have almost nothing in common with the yeast available to most people before modern times. Sometimes these cultures have features to them that are considered defects in the modern industrial brewery. <clears throat> okay, I think that that should suffice for this episode. We've covered some of the gritty, essential basics of beer and its associated technology in the past and currently. In the next episode, we will muddy the waters a bit as we explore the Old Norse beer vocabulary, look at the archaeological evidence for beverages, and take a look at the role of beer in Old Norse culture and society. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. Remember to follow Brute Norse on Facebook and Instagram. Check out my written content on BruteNorse.com and support me on Patreon forward slash Brute Norse for Discord access, 20% off on Brute Norse shirts, early releases, and occasional behind-the-scenes glimpses. Like right now, I do have a rough guide to Nordic or Northern European farmhouse ales 
Groot Bear, and Ancient Tales for the modern consumer. <laughs>